Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. This week, embassy pullouts, armed shipments and troop movements. NATO looks ever more convinced Russia's about to invade Ukraine. You can't push Russians back with words only. You can't hug them to death. We'll scour the maps for where the first sign of Russian action might come and hear how hired Westerners are helping Ukraine's forces to prepare. If they come across the border, we're outgunned, we haven't got air superiority, but Ukrainians fight, so we'll give them a bloody nose, that's for sure. Also on SITREP, why has Abu Dhabi been under attack from drones and missiles? And could military leadership drill a troubled 10 Downing Street back into order? A military chief of staff, the authoritative, disciplined figure, able to sort of advise, to protect the prime minister, and when required, stand up to the boss as well. The people of Ukraine would be forgiven for thinking they're being given mixed messages. Their government is telling them, keep calm and carry on. There is no evidence a Russian invasion is imminent. But at the same time, Ukraine's forces have stepped up training and preparations for exactly that threat. Our training has intensified, troops are being strengthened, supervision of equipment is being strengthened, everything comes down to that. Everyone is in enhanced mode, in standby mode. Maxim Nazarenko, a Ukrainian tank troop commander, and when he says everybody, that includes thousands of Ukrainian reservists and also hired guns originally from the West. They include British men Johnny Wood and Sean Pinner, a former soldier in the Royal Anglian Regiment. I married a Ukrainian. I've got every much right to be here. So the guys know I'm not, you know, a, a war tourist or a war junkie. They know I'm not just going to go home at the end of it. My family's here. My family's 15 kilometres. I can hear the shelling from my front room. I don't think we need to send British troops or American troops. I think all the West needs to do is we need to support Ukraine politically, amp it up and just give them the weapons they need to defend themselves and to defend their country. If they come across the border, we're outgunned. We haven't got air superiority. Uh, we don't have a naval fleet, a very strong naval fleet. Uh, but Ukrainians fight, so we'll give them a bloody nose, that's for sure. Russia continues to insist it has no plans to invade, but the latest moves by Western countries, including sudden withdrawals of some embassy staff, suggest they're increasingly convinced otherwise. We'll explore all that and what might happen next in a moment, but first let's get a view from Ukraine itself. Petro Borkovsky joins us from Kiev. He's an analyst at the think tank, the Ilko Kocherev Democratic Initiatives Foundation. Uh, good to speak to you. Um, how are you and those around you feeling right now? Do people believe a Russian invasion is inevitable? Uh, well, uh, let me say in two ways. Uh, first, uh, let me start with the uh, studies. Uh, in uh, August this year, we asked people whether they uh, feel that there is a serious threat of Russian invasion. And in August, uh, just to remind you, it's a summer time, but still in August last year, 32% uh, of the respondents said, yes, they think that uh, it's inevitable or serious. Uh, and 24% uh, said that uh, that's possible, but uh, it's uh, not very likely. Then in December, uh, we asked people, uh, what are you going to do in case of the Russian invasion, since you see the... Uh, troops amassing at the borders. 11% uh, of the respondents, most of them males, of course, of the, let's say, combat age, like from 18 to 40 years old, they said that they will join a regular Ukrainian army. 
9% said that they will, they will join a volunteer, volunteer uh, groups or battalions uh, to fight enemy in the front or in the rear if certain territories are occupied. And 23% of respondents said that they will provide uh, all kinds of possible non-military assistance to the troops, uh, like including providing food uh, or being donors uh, in, the, in the medical centers and hospitals or providing any kind of assistance to the to the troops so so the the mood is really people are really concerned uh, but uh, still uh, the large number of people think that uh, they are more bothered with the everyday problems actually and petro i mean i just wanted to know how you're feeling not as an analyst but as a citizen right now uh, am i feeling about the uh, possibility of war mm. Well, I think it's uh, the most dangerous time since 2014. So, uh, if if they pre so just I cannot speak right now as a uh, citizen, but as an analyst because I've been working for this uh, for for more than 15 years. So uh, right now we do understand that the threat is real because the uh, the composition of troops uh, says us about the that uh, they are going to do something. They uh, or or it also can be a kind of yeah, a rehearsal or a staged crisis, uh, maybe. And we've seen plenty of pictures of military training from the east of Ukraine, where you are in the capital, much further west. Have the military become more visible? No, no. Uh, uh, it's, uh, I will tell you for the truth that every day I'm using the public uh, transport to go from uh, home to office and back. And no, I do not see any presence, increased presence of military troops or even of the police. Uh, no, nothing uh, has changed in the routine life. Mm. Petra Burkowski, stay with us. I just want to bring in Professor of Defence Studies, Michael Clark. And while you're listening to this, you might want to open a map of Europe on your phone as we try to understand what's been happening in the last few days and what might happen next. Uh, Michael, Petra's in Kiev. That's about 230 miles west of the Russian border. But that land border stretches about 1,200 miles. Is there anywhere on that border that we can identify which might be a key point for activity if an invasion was starting? Uh, well, yes, the most likely area is down in the southeast, in uh, around uh, in the, the Donbass region, as we say. I mean, around uh, Luhansk and Donetsk. Um, uh, I mean, even as far north as uh, maybe Kharkiv, but uh, that's where most Russian forces are that seem to be in high readiness. There are other Russian forces in Belarus which are exercising, but that's a slightly different issue. And of course, there are Russian forces at sea. There are assault ships in the Black Sea. Um, and there are there's a lot of air movements. So the Russians have put a lot of air assets around the border of, of Ukraine in order to increase their combat potential if it comes to that. Mm, on the subject of those military exercises in Belarus, um, that border is less than 100 miles by road to Kiev. How feasible is it for Russia to invade that way if it's so wished? Well, it's a short route uh, via Chernobyl, of course. Um, I mean, you'll be going literally down the great Dnieper River. Um, the, the, it could be done, but the forces that are in Belarus at the moment, although they're exercising and therefore they're at some sort of readiness level, um, we would see, we, if, you know, a dash to Kiev would be a huge thing to do, a massive thing for the Russians to try to do. They would probably need bigger forces to do it than they seem to have there. And it would be pretty obvious to us if they were getting ready to do that. On the other hand, the, the idea of putting pressure on the military calculations of Ukraine uh, in the north, in the Black Sea, and in the southeast 
makes a certain amount of military sense, since if you've got forces in three different places, the Ukrainians have got to watch all three places. But I mean, you know, a dash to Kiev would be so, um, so, so huge a move and an attempt literally to regime changing Kiev by war. um, We that would be different territory to the sort of stuff that we're talking about at the moment. Petra Burkovsky, uh, given all this uncertainty, has Ukraine set up any kind of warning system for people in the most vulnerable areas? So far, I uh, didn't hear about some kind of uh, warning system. Uh, just a few days ago, uh, the Minister of Defense, the Minister of Defense, said that there is a system in place, but it's a Soviet, uh, Soviet uh, old-time system. And uh, actually, as a citizen, I don't know. What is it and uh, how I will be informed about the uh, assault? Maybe Mm -hmm. that will be uh, broadcast through the television or through the Internet. uh, And I believe they will do this. So uh, as a citizen, I don't know. And uh, well, if you allow me, I just would add uh, about the assault or attack against uh, the capital. Uh, First, yes, the capital is important. But I don't think that even if Russians uh, would seize the city, that it will change the minds of Ukrainians. Well, uh, in our history, we had uh, a lot of times when the major or capitals were taken by the enemy and uh, that doesn't stop us to uh, resist the invasion. And what would you do if you heard that an invasion had begun? Uh, as a citizen, I will go to the mobilization center. I'm a, um, I have a military say, ticket and I'm by the law, I'm obliged to appear uh, in case of mobilization and then uh, I will be in uh, 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 I will be ordered then what to do as a, as a conscript. Well let's go back to the map now to work through some NATO actions of this week. Uh, Denmark is sending fighter jets to Lithuania and a frigate to the Baltic both quite a long way north of Ukraine. France has offered to send troops to Romania, a neighbour to the southwest of Ukraine but a long way from any possible invasion point. The US says it's put 8,000 troops on standby to come to Europe and Spain sending a frigate to the Black Sea, the coast of which stretches from Russia past Ukraine to Bulgaria. Uh, Michael Clark, NATO nations say these deployments are for deterrence. It's hard to see how these moves would deter an invasion of Ukraine, especially when the message from NATO is that they wouldn't physically intervene in Ukraine. No, that's true. But what they are designed to do is to say to President Putin and the people around him, remember, it's not just Putin, it's the FSB and the GRU and this whole elite of people who run Russia at the moment, not many of them, but they're very, very powerful and they don't really listen to anyone else. And it's to send a message to them to say, um, look, that if you do act militarily in Ukraine, then NATO will be even more um, alert than it was before. We are not going to let NATO, uh, as it were, dissolve into uncertainty about this. So we will reinforce ourselves. We will send more troops. You'll see more of us the other side of the border that worries you if you attack Ukraine. So that's that's the deterrent effect to say, look, you're, you're just going to make your own security situation worse because we will reinforce all of the key points of NATO's inter- interface with you. And just finally, Petro, is Ukraine feeling let down by NATO or does it feel it's getting the support it wants? No, no, we don't think um, that we are let down uh, because I agree with the professor that uh, by uh, uh, putting and sending the troops, frigates and planes uh, uh, to the uh, Russians' border, that changes calculations of of Russian general staff. Still, we have to remember that uh, they are a little bit uh, concerned 
that if they, for instance, invade Ukraine and would be stuck there, then they, uh, there is a kind of uncertainty whether NATO would intrude into the conflict. And uh, they have to uh, disperse their forces uh, to respond to this uh, NATO, new NATO troops uh, near their borders. So, no, we don't uh, think that we are let alone. Really good to speak to you today, Petro Burkowski. Thank you very much for your time. While Britain has effectively ruled out deploying troops to Ukraine, the Prime Minister has indicated UK forces elsewhere in Eastern Europe could be significantly bolstered. The British Army leads the NATO battle group in Estonia, and if Russia invades Ukraine, we would look to contribute to any new NATO deployments to protect our allies in Europe. And that's because other former Soviet states now in NATO are worried that were Ukraine to be invaded, they could be next. Major General Vyko Velopalm is the deputy commander of Estonia's defence forces. When I look at the latest polls conducting in, in Estonia, people see uh, increase of uh, this kind of concern again. And they see that the threat levels directed towards Baltic states and let's say Estonia particularly have risen. On the other hand, people also feel that we're members of NATO and as long as alliance kind of cohesion is not broken, nothing very bad happens to our states. From the military point of view, of course, we do our plans, we show our readiness, regular snap exercises without any early warning to the reservists. Uh, and we called in two combat engineer battalions two reconnaissance companies to exercise uh, border security with our border and police department. And, and that also shows our readiness and resoluteness and preparedness. So if the worst happens and Russian troops do cross that border into Ukraine, what would Estonia expect NATO to, to do? To answer that question is so much above my pay grade. It's more of the political resolution and economical resolution. But of course Estonia will give concrete military help as much as possible because you can't push Russians back with words only. You, you can't hug them to death. You, you really have to provide weapons. So this we will continue providing. But for NATO, I think we, we must use our political weapons foremost and then the economical weapons that we have against Russia. The message from the alliance have been very, very clear and even threatening that this would be the gravest mistake Russia would ever do to step over Ukrainian border. I hope they are listening. Uh, I'm not very sure. That was Major General Vyko Velopalm talking to our reporter, Simon Newton. Michael Clark, a final thought on this one. Big military moves are often opportunistic. Does the political turmoil in the UK play into President Putin's calculations? Does it affect how Russia is listening to NATO's warnings or is it small fry? Uh, well, it is small fry in terms of what Mr. Putin has got to think about. So, the, I mean, the, the Russians always try to wrong foot their opponents or move at a time when their opponents are off balance. This is not a big issue for him. To be honest, it might work the other way around, of course, that if, if there is a, a Russian move against Ukraine, a military move in the next couple of weeks, it may well save our own prime minister's bacon. So Mr. Putin might save our prime minister um, by, by taking action. News, discussions and analysis. This 
is Zidrab. If we weren't all so busy looking at Ukraine, we might have heard a little more in the last couple of weeks about Abu Dhabi. Not a renowned conflict spot, but this week two ballistic missiles were fired at the capital of the United Arab Emirates. They were, though, shot down by defence forces. However, a week before, three people were killed by drone strikes on oil tankers near Abu Dhabi airport. Houthi rebels in Yemen say they carried out the attacks because of the UAE's involvement in Yemen's seven-year civil war. Well, Dr Andreas Krieg is a senior security studies lecturer at King's College London. Uh, Good to speak to you today. The UAE has been scaling back in Yemen. It withdrew significant numbers of forces in 2019. It pulled out of southern Hodeidah at the end of last year. Why has it been attacked now? Well, I mean, there is a bit of a misperception here. I mean, first of all, the, the civil war has been going on for far longer than 2015. And the UAE's involvement that started really in 2015 as part of the Saudi-led coalition um, hasn't really come to an end. I mean, the Saudis have and the Emiratis have continuously engaged and are engaging in, in, in Yemen. And the, what the UAE have done, particularly in the south of the country, they have um, delegated most of the burden of warfare to surrogates. So they have never really fully withdrawn. They've just delegated that um, that burden to proxy forces that they've been training. And there's still UAE officers on the ground to do training and direction um, on the ground. So, you know, the, the claim and the argument that the Emiratis have made that they are no longer in Yemen has been basically false. They have been in, and are still part of that conflict. And are now for the very first time are held to account for their for their involvement in, in you know war crimes and crimes against humanity on the ground. The Yemen civil war has largely disappeared from British headlines, but it continues. Can you give us a quick overview of the state of play at the moment? I mean, it's a very complex multipolar conflict um, across a variety of different fault lines, tribal, um, north-south sectarian fault lines, as well as uh, um, a range of political fault lines as well. So the conflict is very protracted, and with every escalation that we see, the protraction gets more complex because certain groups are splitting up. Um, but you know, in, there are three major parties that are really competing. In the north, it's the the Houthis, which have you know become known as somewhat a, one of the proxies of Iran, but are an, an indigenous Yemeni player. Uh, then we have the Hadi government, supported by the Saudis, which is supported by the UN as well, <clears throat> which has become really a very very weak player, to be honest. And then we've got the Southern Transitional Council, supported by the UAE. All of them are quasi-state state actors. All of them have their own security sectors and they all fight each other. And then we have a variety of different fringe groups that are also part of the mix. So the, you know, the humanitarian crisis has really been exacerbated by the fact that all these different groups are fighting and there isn't really any point of stability in this conflict. Joe Biden ended support for the Saudi-led coalition fighting the Houthis nearly a year ago. Has that made any difference? No, not at all, um, because, you know, the the Americans are part of the conflict as well, because, you know, because of Iran's involvement on the ground, this has always been something that the Americans were very sensitive about, Trump administration, Obama administration and the Biden administration. And then there is obviously the always the looming threat of, um, you know, violent extremist actors on the ground that, you know, most uh, Western countries, including the UK, find, us, find highly problematic. I mean, Al-Qaeda has been a very, very strong player and remains a very strong player in in Yemen. So, uh, you know, the, the conflict has always been delegated from the West to local forces. So I think the UK and the US were somewhat happy that part of that burden of that very complex co- conflict is now being shared with uh, local Gulf countries who, to be honest, are not really up to the task. So the debate that we're having in Western capitals about how much support are we giving to the Saudis or the Emiratis is a bit phony considering that we're actually that we actually want them to take over that burden because we don't want to do it ourselves
You describe a very bleak situation in Yemen. Is there any hope for peace in the near future? And if so, what is the best hope? The, the only really solution as to any conflict, if you want a proper solution, a comprehensive solution, is a political one, which means all the parties need to be uh, uh, around the table. And there has, been a con there has been a process post the revolution in 2011 uh, of a national dialogue that, that kind of culminated in a conference, with, which was fairly inclusive, but then eventually broke down because it didn't have the support from the international community that was required. Um, the problem now is that the, there isn't a common position in, in the Gulf. There isn't a common position in the international community of who should be represented. Even if you had all the parties around the table, there will always be loads of spoilers. And, you know, there isn't an international community that could really rally around the flag when it comes to what they actually want in Yemen. So, again, the prospect is very bleak. And for the time being, most people are more concentrated on operational objectives on the ground rather than a comprehensive political and strategic solution. Dr. Andreas Krieg there. Uh, Michael Clark, the Houthis are an Islamist movement. Under Donald Trump, the US designated them terrorists. How does a group described as rebels in the West get ballistic missiles and lethal drone capability? Uh, well, because Iran gives them to them. Um, I mean, they, they, their, their short-range ballistic missiles are the um, believed to be the Zulfika uh, missiles from Iran. I think it just gets those whole as it is. It gets drones from Iran, but it also can produce them and, and adapt them itself. There's, there's a, an, an Abibil drone, as it's called, which the Iranians use. And it looks as if the Houthis not only use those drones, but they're also being trained both by Iran and by Hezbollah um, to adapt different technologies to drones, which are easier to produce. So um, the, the, there, are, there are a lot of engineers um, in the Middle East working for terrorist groups who are really very good at adapting things to a low level. But the ballistic missiles, undoubtedly, they just come whole from Iran, and it's basically it's the Zulfika missile, which is up against the, the Patriot defensive missiles that, that the Americans give the UAE and the UAE's own F-16 fighters. Now, let's finish at home. You don't need an inquiry to tell you that 10 Downing Street is going through a difficult time right now. The Prime Minister's headquarters has already reportedly turned to military language in its efforts to get back on track with Operation Save Big Dog and Operation Red Meat. But more than just the language, could military thinking and experience be what Number 10 needs right now? The chairman of the Commons Defence Committee, Tobias Alwood, thinks it's the answer. He's called for a senior military officer to take charge of Downing Street's day-to-day -day operations. There's always a sense of assurance when you bring the military in to support other government departments. Given what this current government has faced at the moment, I think the nation would like to see a clarity, a real line uh, drawn on what's happened in the past and how we're going to move forward. And I think introducing somebody such as a, a military chief of staff, that is uh, the authoritative disciplined figure that we've come to know, able to sort of advise, to be able to protect the prime minister, to encourage and when required, stand up to the boss as well, focus on the mission. There's all sorts of strengths that I think the military bring to bear, particularly a military, a senior military officer at this moment. Well, former army officer Ash Alexander Cooper is now an advisor on leadership and resilience. Uh, good to speak to you, Ash. What do you make of Tobias Elwood's idea? Does military thinking have something to offer to a Downing Street operation that's struggling? Certainly we have experience of this in the past where military leaders can bring a huge amount of value to organisations outside of the military. You know, we're taught at, at Sandhurst here in the UK, you know, that there are three components really of this, command, leadership and management. And many leaders at all levels are, are taught this from day one. So there's, there's certainly areas where 
there might be some value in in his uh, proposal being uh, considered seriously. And is there something unique to military experience about the way people think, the way they lead and employ strategy, or is it just the civilian world doesn't focus and train on these things as much? Well, we're taught that military values and army values, uh, there are you know, a number of, of specific elements, courage, discipline, respect for others, integrity, loyalty and selfless commitment. And I think many of those components are incredibly valuable and welcome in, in, in roles where if you hold high office, you would certainly want as a member of the public to see that your leaders are espousing those kinds of values. And, uh, and it's really important. I think what we're seeing currently is that potentially uh, there are some that may be uh, less evident than others. Uh, but bringing military people in is not necessarily the answer. You know, this has been tried before in America. You may remember General Kelly, a very respected and decorated uh, experienced leader from the US Marine Corps was brought in to uh, bring some rigor to the chief of staff role in the White House. He only lasted so long after some of those you know, values that I've just listed were, were arguably lacking in, in that administration and, and he could no longer reconcile you know, his own moral and other values um, with, with what he was seeing and having to work with in that organisation. So if you're not going to use the military in this kind of situation, how do you get civilian leaders and civilian organisations to learn lessons from military thinking? Well, you don't have to have been in combat to understand the importance of, of those things that make military leaders successful. There's command, there's leadership and management. And, and I've worked for incredible leaders who are amazing combat uh, leaders who perhaps weren't as focused on management and, and they were you know, not necessarily therefore as successful as they might have been. So to be a really great leader, I think you need to have components of all, all three evident. Um, and as we've seen in, in politics, particularly, you know, you can win elections by being charismatic and, and connecting with people as a leader. But if there's other sort of more boring, but, but actually equally or more important functions of systems and process, then it's quite difficult to have a long term future in it. So that's quite interesting, isn't it? So being a, a good combat leader doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a good manager. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've seen that in military. You do talk about command and staff. You know, there are two types of officers or, or soldiers that, you know, you might be a great staff officer who can write well, and um, but you may not be as experienced or, or be as competent on the battlefield. But you know, there's room for everybody and it's it's being able to balance what is needed at the time. You know, and as you move up through the ranks in any organisation, military or, or commercial, you know, the skills that you require to be a good leader do change and adjust over time. And when you hold you know, really high office, what is required of you is very different from those things that may have got you there. So, um, Ash, would you fancy being Downing Street Chief of Staff? And, and if you were, um, what kinds of organisational leadership advice would you give to Downing Street? Well, to be a successful Chief of Staff, this is really about uh, human relationships and understanding uh, the organisation that you're a part of and being able to work with the authority of the leader that you are supporting and representing. To be successful, you really need to be able to adjust or change or improve the systems and processes, but also the culture, the behaviours and skills. You know, if those aren't there, then it's very, very difficult as a as a chief of staff to be effective, not mm. least if if your moral values or, or your own um, integrity is is in question and you're, you're not respected or the leader that you are supporting isn't respected or, or their integrity is either lacking or they've lost uh, the moral or other authority. Um, so it'd be an interesting job, but I think mm. it's a, potentially a poison chalice if the right conditions are not there. Are you, are you saying then you don't fancy the job <laughs> if it were there? I've loved being in chief of staff type roles. I think this one uh, specifically, I would probably not be that keen on 
based on my understanding of, of what the the culture and the uh, situation is in there. But I think it's it's fundamental. You know, we're taught at Sandhurst that you know serve to lead is the motto, and uh, you should never expect others to do what you're not willing to do yourself. Former Army officer Ash Alexander Cooper, Michael Clark, uh, Tobias Elwood isn't talking about handing political power to a military officer in Downing Street, but administrative power. But even that in itself would cross a huge democratic red line, wouldn't it? Uh, Yes, it would, certainly for me, and I think for a lot of other people too. One of the things that's very valuable about this country is that there is a very, very clear division between the military that serve the government and the government. And you know, there are reasons why politics are are hard. There are very good reasons why politics Politics is a tough and different business to be in. You know, George Burns, the, the great American comedian, he used to say, it's such a shame, you know, he said, that, that everybody who knows exactly how to run the government is all driving taxis and cutting hair. Um, yeah. and, and, and the problem is that anybody can tell you exactly what the government should do. They should exactly do this. They should do that. They should not worry about something else. And when you're there, when you're in there, politics is a very different business altogether. It's very difficult. And yet there's plenty of military advice that goes into Downing Street already, isn't there? Oh, yes. And I mean, as, as Ash Alexander Cooper uh, made the point there, that the that in a sense, the present prime minister is the complete antithesis to the sort of leadership that they teach at Sandhurst. And so it doesn't matter who works for the prime minister. If you've got a prime minister who is completely different, who just doesn't have those virtues, then it will never really change. So the issue, as always, as any military person will tell you, goes straight to the top. Professor Michael Clark, thank you so much. And that is it for this week. And thank you to all of our guests. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And at bfbs.com slash SITREP, you can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. (laughs) 